What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Just Friends. I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and this week we are joined in the studio by none other than our friend, the brilliant and thoughtful Mr. Torrance Williams. Torrance and I met in college at UofL, but it turns out he's got deeper Just Friends roots than even I was aware of. He goes all the way back to no middle school, so that was really exciting to learn. But nowadays, Torrance has a master's degree in engineering, and he's working on building a small family of his own. And guess what, guys? He's also started his own podcast, so you guys need to check that out. It's called Let's Get Uncomfortable with Torrance Williams. In it, he attempts to take a thoughtful and well-rounded view at the world in which we live. He's offering up his own nuanced perspective, as well as the perspective of interesting and well-informed individuals that he brings on his show as guests. So... A lot of you guys already know Torrance, you know his character, and you already know that he's the type of person who has uh, ideas to offer. So if you are interested, check out his podcast, Let's Get Uncomfortable with Torrance Williams. And while we're talking about podcasts, take a quick second to rate the show and leave us a review. Share this episode with your best friend or someone who knows Torrance and might appreciate this conversation. And send them over to the website, JustFriendsPod.com, where they can find links to this episode and all the others, where they can learn a little bit more about Just Friends Podcast and how it came to be. They can buy merch there if they're interested, and they can find links to the Patreon page, Patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts, where you can support the show by becoming a patron. They're the coolest people around, the handsome Mr. Ben Risen, the lovely Miss Emily Berry, the lovable Mr. Ryan Ray, the fabulous Miss Emily Brown, and our most recent addition to the Just Friends podcast patron community, the talented Mr. Seth Jones. You guys are the GOAT. I love you all. Thank you all so much. But here we are sitting on a great conversation with Torrent, so I won't take up any more of your all's time. I'm excited to present to you my conversation with our friend, Mr. Torrance Williams. Thank you so much for being willing to do this, man. Mm-hmm. When I first started this, I was like, nobody's going to want to do this. <laughs> nobody's going to want to come talk to me in my basement. Yeah. Like, for real. Like, no. But, dude, so many people have been up for it, and you were super gung-ho about it, and I yeah. really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, anything I can do to help friends and anything, I, I mean, because this is a creative endeavor. You know, it's something that you get to spend your time doing and that you enjoy doing and that you get to pour your your energy and your passion into. And so, you know, I, I've enjoyed doing my podcast. And if I can do that to help other friends, then uh, I'm all for it. And I definitely want to talk about your podcast, but I don't know if you've listened to the show, but usually what it kind of becomes is like a biography mm-hmm. and then also just a hang. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that I, I've tried really hard to do is get people from like a very specific community of people, mm-hmm. my friend groups, and just like it's been really, really interesting to see how those friend groups have intertwined. People know each other whom I never mm-hmm. expected to know each other. <laughs> and that happens to be true about you too. So uh, what part of the city did you grow up in? Because I'm pretty sure you're, you're a Louisville native, right? Born and raised. Yep. Born and raised here in Louisville. Um, so I grew up in Smoketown. Okay. Uh, Smoketown's right near Germantown, uh, right at Kentucky and uh, Shelby. And Smoketown, for the longest time, was the oldest uh, African American, predominantly African American community here in Louisville. Up until about recently, uh, gentrification has come through. And I know if you've heard of uh, like Atrium Brewing Company that just came in, Logan Street Market just got down there, uh, Red Top Hot Dogs, which is a place that I actually still uh, really I enjoy. 
Um, but you know, a lot of that stuff that's in there right now is, is crazy. You know, it wasn't there when I was growing up and really just seeing the neighborhood kind of grow is just, uh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting thing that happens. Cause you know, a lot of people are like, we love new Lou. It's a great area. Lots of great, uh, restaurants, mm-hmm. great businesses. It's bringing in a lot of money for the city. Yeah. But then you also have to think like those used to be residential areas. People used to live there and, and have communities and invest in yep. each other there. And that just doesn't get to happen anymore. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest things that people don't realize or really make the connection with is the fact that Nulu is great. You know, we've we've added businesses and restaurants and it booms. Uh, we've needed that here in Louisville because, you know, five o'clock people just leave. They go back to their suburbs and away from downtown, where if you go to other bigger cities, you know, man, they're downtown and six, seven o'clock is, is bumping. Um, but here, up until about Nulu, we didn't have that. But the connection that people are missing is that since Nulu has been around, our homeless population has also gotten larger. And that's because we've displaced people. You know, we took away a lot of low income housing and we haven't replaced that with anything that, that allows them to still live in that same neighborhood or to benefit from the growth where they were displaced. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, a lot of the growth and a lot of the revenue that we get still doesn't get spread to where it needs to. And by what I mean by that is lower income neighborhoods, whether it be Weston, Louisville, whether it be Shively, Dixie Highway, whatever, it gets spread out to the rest of uh, rest of the Louisville. So I wish that we kind of had a, an initiative where we were taking a lot of this money and trying to figure out what we could do to help those that were displaced and also try to reinvest it in areas of town that, you know, don't have that same growth. So, I mean, like I could totally understand why you would be passionate about those kinds of things, especially growing up in an area that has experienced a lot of gentrification. So you grow, you said you grew up in Smoketown. Where'd you go to elementary school? Uh, so I went to Shelby elementary first and that is, uh, right there in Smoketown. I used to walk to school and it was a predominantly black school. Um, it was also one of the worst elementary schools in the state. Um, but you know, I, I've been a bright kid since, uh, you know, since kindergarten, first grade, I caught into things very quickly and always got my work done. But once I got my work done, that's when I got in trouble. Of I'd be, I, you know, I'd be talking, I, I'd be, man, I was an angry kid too. I had a lot of things, uh, that I had to go through family wise and whatnot, a lot of trauma. And, um, I, I think a, a lot of my teachers at that school for having the patience with me and realizing that. You know, I had some things I needed to work through through counseling and whatever else that the school provided. And um, they realized that I was bright and allowed me to take the advanced program test. Uh, I took that in third grade, scored very highly. And the school that I was at did not have an advanced program. So I had to move schools. So for fourth and fifth grade, I went to uh, Courage Taylor Elementary, which was one of the highest achieving mm. school elementary schools uh, in the state of Kentucky. And, you know, if I look back at anything in my life, I might've been what, nine, 10. I think that that was the single biggest impactful thing in my life is that I was able to change because change schools, because it allowed me to be with other kids that were high achieving. Uh, it also opened up a lot more doors for me, um, you know, going to a better middle school, which allowed me to go to a better high school, which allowed me to be around peers who had goals set for going to college. And it really set me on the path that I ended up going down. It sounds like, you know, facing that adversity as a young person really, mm-hmm. s- you know, set the tone for the, your character as an adult. So 
what was it like making that transition from a school that was like like not a high achieving school to one where you were going to be challenged as a person and you yeah. have to grow at nine years old also? <laughs> yeah, it was a big, uh, it was a big change, but honestly it was a big cultural change more than anything. Yeah. You know, uh, the friends that I had in my neighborhood, they were the same ones that I went to school with and they were predominantly black. And so then when I went to Coach Taylor and I'm in the advanced program, we know about the achievement gap. Uh, especially when you talk about math and science and, and whatever else I was with mostly white kids and it was, uh, it was a shock. Um, there's a, uh, there's a quote recently that got picked up by LeBron James, uh, people that necessarily don't enjoy him where he was talking about, uh, on his show, the, the shop where he said, you know, I, I went to a predominantly white high school to play basketball. I think it was St. Mary's. And he said, man, I have never done that before. And his mindset was, you know, I don't really want to be friends with these white people and all this and that. And he was really talking about his mindset at that time because it was just, it, it's just a different, it's a difference in the culture. And I experienced that when I was in elementary school, even at 10, even at age 10, as I was just kind of like looking around like, man, this is, this is really different. You know, I didn't have the mindset of, I didn't want to be friends with them or anything like that. It was more of, I don't know if I necessarily know how to how to work in this space. I don't know <laughs> exactly how I'm supposed to conduct myself. Things yeah. are so different. Um, am I going to have trouble making friends because we're talking about completely different things. They have different uh, backgrounds than I do. Um, it was just uh, really interesting. I bet that was interesting and, and I bet it was challenging. I think back to elementary school for myself and I went to Johnsontown elementary, which is here, not far from here over off Johnstown road. And, uh, you don't know anything when you're a kid. And most things that happen to you happen to you. You don't mm -hmm. choose to have them happen to you. They just do. You know, so like I also was lucky enough to have the opportunity to get into advanced program. It didn't happen to me until sixth grade, but yeah. I didn't choose that. My parents were just like, hey, mm -hmm. your teacher said you need to do this. And so to be, to be told you're going to be put in this place where now you're suddenly different and yeah. it's obvious that you're different, that would be really, really tough. Yeah, But it's cool, though, that you say that it led to you having opportunities in the future, because I know the next place you went was no middle school. <laughs> and so many cool people that I've talked to on this podcast want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, was a, it was definitely a great place. Um, you definitely hit the nail on the head there a second ago when you talked about how, you know, your parents put you on that path for advanced program. That's the the biggest difference that I see growing up from the way that I did is that I was raised with my grandmother. Um, both of my parents weren't, weren't around when I was younger. Uh, they battled uh, addiction to cocaine. They were also in and out of jail all the time. And so my grandmother had me and my older sister, and she raised us. And she had a, a high school diploma, but she didn't have anything outside of that. And so when it comes to navigating schools and, and knowing what you need for higher education, she didn't know that. You know, it's it's one of those things where if you've gone through it, you then know the process, you know, the cycle, you're a lot, you're able to then help your offspring or help others do that. But if you don't have that, how are you supposed to figure it out? How are you supposed to know it? Especially when she was working multiple jobs to make sure that we had a roof over our heads, you know, clothes on our back, food on the table, things like that. And she did a very good job of, you know, I didn't really, I knew that we didn't have much, but I didn't really, I never went hungry. I never, you know, necessarily needed anything. Um, and the, the peer group, um, you know, when we got to middle school, got to know God's coach, Taylor, the friends that I made, they, their parents were just so, so supportive 
and they really knew what their goals were for their kids. Their kids knew their knew the goals, even at age 10 or 11, talking about, hey, you know, I'm going to apply to go to this middle school. Applying to go to middle school? I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had teachers that helped me. I had friends, parents who helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even when we got to middle school, uh, no, that that's the way that it was there too. And We'll talk about you know high school later, but that was an even an even bigger jump. It it is interesting. I can I can kind of relate to that also. Like uh, you, you talked earlier about having trauma, and I didn't want to dive too deep into mm-hmm. what that was, but now I kind of get an idea of where that comes from. Mm-hmm. My dad struggled with alcoholism and addiction and stuff like that, so I, I, I can I can kind of relate to that whole idea, except for the fact that I was white the whole time, which helped. Um, but the challenges of being that young person and like not having a plan and not knowing what comes next, mm-hmm. it's frightening. And then I would imagine being surrounded by people who did seem to have a plan. Mm-hmm. Was that scary? Did you feel like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that happened all the time. Um, I, I honestly, so after I went to middle school, went to high school, went to manual, uh, which is, you know, the best public high school in, in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. And, Man, the peer group that I that I met in high school and the goals that they had and the I mean, I, I can't even I don't even have the words for it. You know, um, I would bring my grandmother would meet the friends that I made and then I would be able to uh, spend time at their houses on weekends and stuff. And I still remember um, my best friend, Kenny. I remember going to his house for the first time and just seeing where it was um, out near Prospect and so my walking. in-laws live, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just walking in there and I was just like, man, you know, like he and I like are, are, are essentially the same person. Like we, we, we like the same things. We get along really well. And it's like, I walked into his house and I was like, but I didn't know you get to go home to this and that we were <laughs> this different, you know? Um, but it was really cool. You know, uh, my other friends uh, being able to go to their homes as well and, and really seeing the the two parent household thing, and seeing how they parent and how they how they work together, and you know seeing him hearing them talk about traveling and and their different degrees, and you know going to different colleges and the and, and the and the path that they took, and then also hearing my friends talk about the path that they're planning out for themselves was just a whole new world, but it was great because my grandmother knew that her work was done once I got to high school <laughs> because I, I had a peer group that was already on this path towards yeah. being successful. And at that point, that's more important than anything that your parents or your, your you know, like your, uh, your guardians are going to, that's when the influence shifts mm-hmm. to your friends. And really that happens kind of in middle school too. So you, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. I don't want to get away from no though just yet because <laughs> there's so many cool people that I know from low. I got to talk to to Kelsey Lee who went to no. Do you know Kelsey? Do I know Kelsey Lee? Of yeah. course I do, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Kelsey and I were in band together. Nice. Uh, yeah, middle school and in high school, man. Wait a second. Does that mean that you had Miss Birdwhistle? Uh Miss Lyles now and oh. we are yeah, we are um yeah, she and I are friends on Facebook and everything else. We we talk to each other all the time. She was my probably one of my top two favorite teachers from uh, from middle school. She, she got, yeah, she got married. Yeah, she's not Miss Birdwood. That's the greatest <laughs> band teacher name in the history of the world. Yeah, I want to make T shirts that say <laughs> I had Miss Birdwhistle. Man, and sell them on my website. Man. it's the best. She was man. She was great. Uh, really, really great. Um, she recently retired actually. Oh, good for her. Uh, last year. So she is. Uh, 
she's done teaching and I, I feel sorry for other te- for other uh, students who, who could have had her and, and could have had her for the full three years. I mean, she was just a phenomenal human. That's amazing. Teachers are so important. I used to be a teacher. I have so many friends who are teachers. I spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of the things that we were just talking about earlier. Mm-hmm schools that I've taught at most were PRP, which is where I graduated from high school and DOS, which is, you know, in in a difficult area town and has a Mm -hmm. lot of the challenges you were just talking about. Yeah. So I'm passionate about that a lot. I, I have a lot of respect for teachers. Uh, I honestly think that they are some, one of the most important professions that we have. And I really wish that they were paid more because when you ask bright kids about what they want to be, rarely do you hear them say, I want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And and the reason for that is money. And, you know, I grew up poor and I wanted to make money. I'm an engineer now, but only because I knew that engineers made money and I wanted and I didn't want to be poor, but I would have loved to have been a teacher and and to go on that route. But not that they don't make a a good living, but I wanted, I wanted more than that. Right. Yeah. I totally understand. You didn't want to have to think about like, what's my summer job going to be or something like that. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. But. I imagine, you know, because you just mentioned that you're an engineer and I imagine your choice of high school had a lot to do with that. And and I have a, quite a few friends that also went to manual. My mm-hmm. cousin went to manual. You probably know him, Matt Slusser. He was yeah. my cousin. Yeah, I know Matt. But I talked to Shamir Patel recently. Shamir. And I, I have a lot of buddies that went there. So for me, I started off in speed school, yeah. which is where you ended up getting your degree from mm-hmm. there. So we'll get there eventually. But that's that whole process started for me in high school because I took a test. And that test said, you are pretty decent at like mathy stuff mm-hmm. and you should be an engineer. Yeah. So I was like, okay, great. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's got a plan for me because right? I don't. So I'm wondering like, you know, you're in high school, you're surrounded by all these peers who have goals for their future. And now you're starting to think, what do I want to do with my life? Mm-hmm. Where did the decision to pursue engineering, where did that jump in? So... um, I talk about how I went to that predominantly white elementary school, Coach yeah. Taylor. And oh, wow, that early, huh? Yeah, cool. And in fourth grade, and I, I, I'm sorry I don't remember this, this guy's name, but there was a black astronaut who came and talked to us. And at this point, like our entire class, and at this point, I was really big into to science, man. I, I loved space, I loved everything about it. And so then to see an, an, a real astronaut to come and not just a real astronaut, a real black astronaut to come to our school and talk, I, the, the idea of representation is so important and it means so much. And I wish that I knew that guy's name because I would love to reach out to him and let him know about just the fact of him coming to our school and being there because I distinctly remember sitting in this round, this round room that we had in our, uh, in our library and he, and he talked to us and I just remember just not being able to keep my eyes off of him. Just thinking, wow, this is really cool that you have someone who has been launched into outer space and has been in a rocket ship and has come back. And I've just always been enamored with math and science since then, because he said, those are the two most important subjects that you need if you want to get into science or become an astronaut. And I did want to be an astronaut after that until I realized that I'm a big human and (laughs) I don't think that I would fit in those suits. And I don't think that, uh, and I also don't like heights all that much. So, uh, yeah, I think that went out the window pretty soon. Um, 
Yeah, you got to be a big risk taker. You yeah. got to be totally willing to just die at work. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, <nah>, I'm good. <laughs> no, but that's cool though, because you know I listen to podcasts and I hear the perspective, especially of people of color, and they talk about like growing up. They're like, I looked around me, and there was no people like me in the media who were you know really pr- representing success in that way. You don't see a lot of black doctors. You don't see a lot of black astronauts. And I'm, and I mean, of course they exist. Of course mm-hmm. they exist. So how? meaningful that must have been to see this person who was like at the pinnacle of success absolutely but who also looked like you and you could relate to in that way mm-hmm. i mean what were you in fourth grade 11 yeah it must have been powerful it was it, it was and it's absolutely stuck with me uh to this day and the, there's another quote and it's 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 what you'll see is what you'll be and if wow. i was never exposed to this black astronaut or to, to math and science in that manner, then who knows what I would have been. And there are a lot. And if I was still at that other elementary school, that never would have happened. Who knows what path I would have been on if I had never gotten into the advanced program, if I had never gone from a low achieving uh, elementary school to another one. I mean, you, you just, you just never know. Um, and so a lot of kids that grow up in low income and minority neighborhoods, they're never exposed to to better things. They're never exposed to, to what's out there. And so how can we expect them to achieve more or achieve better if they never see more, if they never, uh, if they never see better, you know, and I, and I think trying to hold them to, to that standard of, oh, well, you know, you, you make your own decisions. is kind of tough. Um, especially when you don't have the same resources that other kids have, or if you don't have the same education or the same guidance, um, People talk all the time about how, you know, there are more opportunities out there today for minorities than there are for white people. And you know what? I honestly don't disagree, but there's a big difference between opportunity and the ability to take advantage of an opportunity. And what I mean by that is you could offer a kid who just graduated high school a $100,000 job to do data entry. But if that kid went to a low achieving high school where they just pass him through and he's actually graduating with a seventh grade reading level, a ninth grade writing level and a eighth grade math level, and he doesn't have the computer skills to do it, he's not going to do well in that job and he's going to fail. And, and someone will say, well, hey, look, there was this opportunity. Well, yeah, there was this opportunity, but he couldn't take advantage of it because they didn't have the skills. And so, yeah, give them opportunities, but also make sure that we're building these people up and giving them the ability to take advantage of these opportunities that are out there as well. Yeah. If there's an opportunity that's available, but you don't have the necessary skill base to take advantage of it, then it's just somebody else's opportunity. And that's a thing that I experienced a lot when I was in the classroom was I was, uh, I would sometimes be teaching like algebra two. I, was, I taught math. So mm-hmm. I'll teach algebra two and geometry. And I was sitting there thinking like, to me, these concepts are pretty basic. Yeah. But I'm trying to teach it to these young kids and I'm expecting them to learn this. But if I went to their parents and asked their parents to do this math, mm-hmm. their parents couldn't do this math. My parents couldn't do this math. Right. So I'm not saying anything negative about their parents, but it was a challenge for me to learn this. I struggled right. for years to learn this content. I, I, it was unfair of me to even expect them to be ready to take it on at all. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that I was just trapped in that situation because of the way that we've structured our education system. Yeah. But I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about you. Well, I, I want to talk about that though, okay, because, well, <laughs> because, uh, you, you hit on a, a good point there. We'll typically say that it's not the child's fault if they're not understanding things. And 
typically, and I'll, and I'll say low income because low income covers minorities. It also sure. covers low income whites. You made that point earlier that, you know, you grew up low income in this area and things like. I wouldn't say that. I don't want to re- misrepresent yeah, myself. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. No worries. But you're right. But you did take that away and you said, yeah, except, you know, I was white. Yeah. But there's a, there's a difference between racial strife, obviously, and class strife. But class strife is really the biggest thing that's that's hitting yeah. that, that's that's hitting everyone right now, yeah. um, and the struggle in class strife between blacks and whites is is very is very similar. In fact, it's the same. The only difference is that there's always that there's that racial strife where white people who are facing class strife do not have to worry about any of that. Don't have to don't have to navigate that, and so that's the biggest difference there. But we talk about these these cycles, and it's a cycle of low education. So if there's a kid that's not understanding something. It's not really that kid's fault if when they go home, they don't have guidance or someone at home that knows what they're going through or knows how to help them or knows where to start. And so typically they'll say, well, it's not really that kid's fault. It's 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 the guidance's fault. It's the parent's fault for not instilling that in them, for not helping them, for not getting them the tools that they need to survive or to succeed. Sorry. <laughs> and Same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what if the parents also went through that. Yeah. What if they never re- received the tools that they needed to succeed? What if they never learned how to do that? What if they never learned, you know, financial education or financial literacy? What if they never learned a lot of these things and they grow into adults and they have kids and they're not able to teach that to them as well? So then we have cycles and it's like, well, we put it on the guidance, but they never had it. Well, and then we put it on their guidance, but their guidance never had it. And so we have these cycles that perpetuate a, of low education or lack of understanding and it's really hard to break that and to, to, and to really address those issues. I'm interested in you, a person who, <laughs> a person who, you know, pursued engineering, you're interested in, in, in the structure of society and, and how right. it impacts people. And that's actually what my undergrad was. I left speed school and got mm-hmm. a sociology degree. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I got a master's degree in teaching. So that was like, that's my background. So I'm passionate about that. And I'm yeah. familiar with a lot of the things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. When did that start for you? When did you start to build that passion? Oh, man. So I'll I'll, I'll finish answering an earlier question that rolls into this. Perfect. Because um, you asked me when I got into engineering. Well, after that uh, astronaut, I, I was math and science, math and science, math and science. It, it got me into uh, manual where I was in the math, science, technology magnet. And, you know, just really stuck with it, really stuck with it. And junior year, when everyone's talking about colleges, I didn't know what I wanted to do, what I wanted to major in. I had now gotten to the point where I knew that I needed to start and I knew that I needed to be, you know. <laughs> I uh, probably have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the plan, you know. Um, so I started asking my friends that were in a math, science, technology magnet with me. And I said, hey, you know, what are you all majoring in? And so many of my friends said engineering. And I was like, wow, okay. So, so what is engineering? And I, I went to school with a lot of bright kids and not one of them could give me a great explanation of what engineering was. And I was like, I like it. I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to pl- like put myself in a hole and like, this is what I'm going to do. It seemed like something that was very open-ended and wide. And I was like, I like that. Yeah. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed. So, uh, you know, really went into engineering. I, I thought that I wanted to do uh, aeronautical engineering to kind of keep the uh, astronaut thing going, but, uh, ended up going to university of Louisville and, uh, went into mechanical engineering and then figured out that mechanical engineering was not what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I got into industrial engineering, which was more of the 
uh, efficiency side of things. Um, we're typically people who will sit back and look at a system and see how we can make it more efficient, uh, take away things that are, um, that are not helping throughput are not helping, uh, you know, the, the timing and, and situations like that. And it's funny because now as an adult, I will be sitting in line at a bank because we'll, we'll talk about queuing theory. And I'm just like, man, why are we not doing multiple servers in a single queue? Like why? And are all be at fast food. And I'm like, man, if I was a manager in here, <laughs> we would be getting these out like this, you know? And so it's really cool. Kind of how my mind is just set up for that. And I really hate inefficiencies nowadays, <laughs> but to get back to your other question, I went into engineering because I wanted to make money. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember getting my first check because I worked at GE for as my first job, General Electric is my first job. Um, I did forecasting for customer demand. So and I did it. Were you co-oping there? No, I actually did my co-ops at Brown Foreman. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I got to, I got to forecast for customer consumption when I was at Brown Foreman. We were pushing Woodford Reserve, Jack Daniels, Finlandia Vodkas, that kind of stuff. That was really cool. Unfortunately, when I graduated, they didn't have a job open mm. for me. Those <laughs> bastards. Right? So I uh, got a job at GE and was uh, was forecasting for customer demand for um, refrigerators and washers, dryers, dishwashers, things like that. I literally had the control to change numbers in a program that would drive production worldwide. It was wow. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, so people who don't understand what you're saying, you basically were trying to guess mm -hmm. how many products were going to be purchased for a year i suppose or was it like a, during a certain timeline right during a certain so so, so you guys would know how much to produce right and we actually did it on a weekly basis oh, wow. yeah so we so i mean we would say all right we're going to do 800 dishwashers this week here of this model we're going to do 1400 this week of this model and so you had your 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 quantities of which ones were were too high and and whatever else but I won't go into more detail. It's it's really boring. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea is that I really thought I was going to go into forecasting and things like that, but it's actually not the job that I have now. But all of that is to say, 25 is when I always look back and I say, okay, that's kind of when I really became an adult. Do you, you feel know? like that's when your brain clicked on? Yes. That's when I feel like my brain clicked on. I was like, what the fuck was I even thinking before? And Man. then it's been like a weird progression to where even now when I look back at 25, I was like, I was just practicing thinking. Yeah. I wasn't even good at it. And, and now I can't wait to look back at myself at 30 from 50 right? and think, what the fuck was I even thinking? <laughs> Dude, uh, it's so true. Um, I So at 25, I had a friend of mine who was on the board for, on an associate board for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And I knew a couple other people that were on the associate board too, it was a young professional board. And they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it because, you know, they knew my background and knew that, you know, I was passionate about helping others. Well, I kind of said no for a while. And then uh, I applied to be on the board and I got on and man, I got hooked. Um, being able to hear stories of really impacting people's lives and uh, the work that we did was we raised money and raised awareness for uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, which puts mentors into the lives of children who otherwise wouldn't have them. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I tell people this all the time. The biggest influence I had in my life was my grandmother. And that positive driving force is the reason that I am su as successful as I am now and as successful as I'm hoping that I will be in the future. And there really wasn't a big difference between me and the other people in my neighborhood who I know a lot of people now who are dead. I know a lot of people now who are in jail. 
who are on drugs. And the biggest thing that I can look back on and say is that, you know, they didn't really have the guidance that I had. And we can talk about a lot of the issues and a lot of the root causes that causes that, but the ability to put a positive influence in someone's life to guide them is just monumental. And so with Big Brothers Big Sisters, I really enjoyed that and I really loved doing that. And I also ended up getting into a leadership role with them as I became president of that young professional board. And it really allowed me to grow a lot of my leadership skills and to really learn how to be a leader. And that is something that I've really tried to build on. And it's something that really spearheaded me wanting to work, work in, you know, social justice and volunteering and giving back to the community that's given me so much. Uh, there's another program that I work with in the summers called Hobie. And that one is a, uh, it's a, it's a global uh, network and they work on leadership skills for high school sophomores. That's a critical age, man. Mm-hmm. Yep. Critical age. <laughs> That's really, really cool. Yeah. And you know, about specifically about you, you know, we've thrown around the word social justice. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't particularly love that term now because it's been wrapped up in this like hyper left, super partisan it has. concept. And you, you, you always end up with people whose perspectives are maybe not the most nuanced mm-hmm. screaming. And yelling and, and saying things that are not necessarily that, that they haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about. Right. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about you and about other friends that I have um, is now in a time where there is so much turmoil and where there's so much negativity, especially on certain platforms like mm-hmm. social media platforms. You are a voice of reason there. You are a person who is willing to hear both sides of the story, mm-hmm. who, who's willing to have thoughts that don't necessarily fit into one mold or the other. And that's so necessary right now because what we see so much right now is loud people on the extremes screaming over all the reasonable people in the middle. Yeah, Um, I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, I I work really hard on on doing that and trying to really promote being able to see both sides and being able to calm down and, and try to listen and have a good conversation. I have always found myself in the middle. And what I mean by that is for years, I was the white black guy. I am, I I am that black guy who's, uh, he's, he's not really black, you know? And so I got that from the friend group and for, for the longest time I accepted it. I joked around with it. You know, I didn't know any better. And as I got older, I realized that my white friends some of them, not all of them, a, a, a good portion of them, um, really saw me as an exception to, mm. to black people and to black culture. And what I mean by that is they don't understand how I grew up. They don't understand black culture. They actually have a negative connotation, a negative feel of black people and black culture, but they accept me but they don't see me as that. Mm-hmm. They don't see me as black. They don't have a lot of other black friends. Exactly. That's a problem. That, and that's a huge problem that I see in a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. like, you need to go hang out with some gay dudes <laughs> for real. Or yeah. like, you need to go hang out with some black guys. Yeah. Or you need to spend 40 hours a week in a classroom with a bunch of kids who are primarily black, Latino, and the everybody's poor. Because yeah. you would learn... Like they're all really fucking cool, man. Yeah. Like they, their struggles and a lot of them are assholes. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But 
Yeah. It gives you a perspective that that you might not otherwise have. And it freaked me out as an adult when I was probably about 24, 25, when I was hanging out with some people mm-hmm. whose perspectives I valued, who I had spent a lot of time with. And then all of a sudden they're like making comments that are extremely inappropriate. Yeah. Whether they just be racial or just ignorant comments in general. And I'm thinking to myself, do you hear yourself? Yeah. Like, do, do you hear the things that you're saying? And I think personally that I was lucky to be exposed to certain ideas in college. Um, I spent a lot of time studying sociology, which is a, you know, it's a social science and you can mm-hmm. say whatever you want about the social sciences now, but I didn't get so <laughs> indoctrinated into it that I wasn't able to think for myself. Right. I came out the other side of it with a really interesting and perspective that I would never have had mm-hmm. otherwise. And so when I find somebody else who has a similar perspective, like mm-hmm. yourself, Derek Thomas is someone else who I think of like that. Derek is awesome. Yeah. I talked to him recently. Uh, <laughs> I stayed up to like three o'clock in the morning because in Abu Dhabi, yeah. it was like 10 a.m. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I'm supposed to be at work right now, but I'm going to talk to you about this. <laughs> and uh, it was funny because he was like, you you should have Torrance on. And I was like, dude, I messaged him like three days ago. Yeah. I'm like, I'm ahead of you, brother. <laughs> but having people who have those nuanced perspectives and then also people who are willing to change their mind. Mm-hmm. We need to normalize changing your mind based on new information. <laughs> Speaking of changing your mind, have you ever, have you read my, are you, do you like to read? I do. What types of books do you like to read? Depends on what I want to learn about. Yeah. So I, t- I typically like to read things um, that are going to give me new information, or if it's a topic that I don't know a lot about, I, I'd like to read those. Typically, I'm not someone that's going to read someone's biography, although I've, I've done that you know, a few times. Um, one in particular being Trevor Noah's uh, Born a Crime. Mm. Oh my gosh, is that a phenomenal book? I've never even thought about it. I love him. He's hilarious. He, I, f- I find his comedy very good. He he's abs- he's he's incredible, and that book is just so well written. And he also talks about the way that I feel, which is being caught in the middle. Uh, but he talks about it on an even bigger scale. Um, you know, with apartheid and everything mm. else that went on in South Africa. But um. Yeah, uh, right now I'm reading uh, fatherhood books uh, as my wife and I are expecting here in January. So Congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, so that's that's really it's been on my been on my plate now. <laughs> How do you feel about that right now? Being a person who is a thoughtful person mm-hmm. who's who's sees the landscape in which we are currently living, I think with a clear perspective. How do you feel about that, and what do you think about that whole process? Because I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of my only friends who doesn't have kids. Yeah. I, I'll i tell you that I think that it's in the back of my mind right now mm-hmm. that is spearheading a lot of uh, the conversations that I have. I am very thankful to have gone through engineering school and to have really developed my brain to critically think because I think that what sets me apart when I have conversations with people is I can argue all day. I think that I'm very good at being able to use statistics and facts to really build my argument. But when you're talking to people, especially someone who respects you, and I think that's what we're really missing right now is having conversations with people and coming down to a human level and just saying, hey, we're going to drop these walls of our partisan sides or or this or that. Let's actually just have a conversation. And I want to hear about your perspective and I want you to hear my perspective. And that's really what I try to do is I try to say, Hey, this is my perspective. And if you challenge this, okay, well, 
what critical questions can I think of to ask you so that you'll make connections on your own? Because I think it's more powerful for someone to make a connection on their own in their own mind rather than to have someone tell you what it is. And so I will sit back and I will keep trying to craft questions that challenge the person I'm talking to's mindset. And if they're willing to be open and honest with themselves, typically they'll come to, I won't say the correct answer, but they'll come to an answer that may be different from where their mindset has typically been. Because I'm not here to to have these conversations to tell them that they're wrong. I'm here to offer a different perspective and a different view. And what you do with that perspective and what you do with that view is up to you. If it is different than what you've believed and what you've seen your whole life, then digest it and figure out what that does to your opinions. But what I don't like and what I, I, I kind of can't understand is for someone to digest a different perspective, learn new information. Like I can't tell you how many people I explain redlining to. So many people that have these hard opinions on what low-income and minority Americans should be doing with their money or how they should be living their lives or what they're doing wrong, yet they have not grown up low-income. They do not live low-income. They don't have minority friends. They do not have that perspective at all, yet they have these these hard-wired opinions on what they should be doing and what they're doing wrong. And it's like, how? How do you have that? I, I didn't grow up in Eastern Kentucky in rural, poor white America, you know? I don't have hard opinions on what they're doing Stop wrong. Stop doing heroin. <laughs> I don't have hard opinions <laughs> on what they're doing wrong and, and, and what they should be doing better. The only way that I can have that, or I should, first of all, I shouldn't have any hard opinions on it at all, but the only way that I can even understand what could help them is by engaging my friends that I know or people from Eastern Kentucky and trying to learn their perspective and, and really see what's going on in that, in that area and figuring out you know why there are these differences. I try to talk to people a lot about cause and effect. So similarly earlier where I was talking about, you know, as a kid, I acted out. Um, I mean, there's a story of, of me in, in high school. There was a kid that was two years younger than me. I get on the bus and I hadn't seen him in probably four years because I had changed elementary schools. And I get on the bus and he comes to the back and he goes, hey, are, are you Torrance? And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm Torrance. He's like, oh man, you were in Miss Pibus's class uh, in, in Shelby. And I remember she took your baseball cards one day and you threw a fit, man. You took the desk and you threw it across the room and all this and that. And there are a lot of people that know me today that'd be like, no, that was never you. And my teachers, they realized that I had an anger problem, that I had trauma. That's why I was acting out. I, I didn't know what to do with this anger. I didn't know what to do with these feelings that I had. And so they said, you know what? You're in trouble, but we're also going to make sure that we address the root cause of these issues. And so we're going to give you therapy. Therapy worked wonders. I was able to work through my emotions. I was able to work through my pain. And I was better for it. But today, and we're I'll get a little deeper, we're talking about the protests that are going on right now. And we're talking about people who feel that they haven't been heard. People who have been going through the same problems for decades after decade after decade. And they're acting out. Sure, some of these things are getting violent. But what do you do when you've been trying to peacefully protest? What do you do when people have repeatedly said, you're what's wrong? You're, you are the cause of your own problems. It's, it's like if someone was self-harming themselves and the doctor just kept bandaging them back up and, and treating the wounds. Well, they're going to keep coming back because they're going to continue to self-harm because you're not treating the root cause. Mm-hmm. 
the root cause is that there's a mental issue there. Mm -hmm. There's something that they're battling. There's something they're going through. So you need to work through that because once you do that, the effects will lessen. The effects will go away. And so there are root causes in society for why we see a high incarceration rate in the low income communities, why we have the cycles of low education, why we have a lack of access to health care, why we have uh, such a wealth gap where black Americans have one twelfth the wealth of white Americans, where we have such a, a large achievement gap, a large income gap, literally every single aspect of society, there's a large gap between black America and white America. And I don't understand how a lot of people can look at that and just say, oh, that's the fault of black folk. You know, they're, they're, they're doing that to themselves, especially when they don't know about redlining, where, yeah. where we completely took away any chance of black Americans to be able to build wealth, which middle, middle America, middle-class America, you build wealth through owning your own home. Yeah. So when you block access from them being able to own their own homes and you force them into created ghettos, which now have uh, festered and have so many other issues like high crime, rise of gangs, uh, broken families through mass incarceration, all of these things together are what create these cycles of poverty and cycles of low achievement. And unless we get in there and we actually try to break those cycles apart and give them resources and the ability to break those cycles themselves, we're just going to keep having these, these, these issues, these disparities, they're not going to go away. Things are just going to get worse. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's great. So you have a really awesome and nuanced perspective. You just talked about so many different things that, and there wasn't a thing that you said that I wasn't familiar with or that I didn't agree with. But the the thing is, is that I've been reading about these things and learning mm -hmm. about these things since I was like 24, <laughs> Yeah, you know? So it's taken me six or seven years to really, to take in this information. And then I spent a lot of time really thinking a lot about it and trying to form my own nuanced opinions about it mm -hmm. based off of these facts. Some people just aren't going to do that. And a lot of the people who aren't going to do that, the reason they're not is for the same exact reasons that we see low-income people struggling to get education. They've never seen anybody else who cared about that. A lot of people are just regurgitating the thoughts of the people around them rather than, you know, formulating their own ideas about something. Mm -hmm. And then we also have so much to keep us distracted we have all of these things around us that keep us distracted. And then I personally think that it is the agenda of most of the people whom we have voted into office mm -hmm. to to maintain that distraction yeah. because it benefits them in the sense that it makes the American population easier to manipulate. And then they can just kind of continue to get their way and continue to be wealthy and continue to be in charge. Yeah. So you nailed it there. Uh, money drives everything in everything. this country. So when people talk about systemic racism, they're really talking about the disparities that we see between black people and white people. I mean, when you talk about, I, I'm, I'm on the Young Professionals Board right now for a Nativity Academy here in Louisville, and it is a free private middle school for kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. And their demographic, black mm -hmm. Americans typically, 69% uh, high school graduation rate. But over 15 years, this school's had, I believe, almost a thousand or over a thousand students go through it. And they boast a 98% high school graduation rate. The, the So the disparities that we see right now between black America and between white America is more a class issue than it is a race issue today. And what I mean by that is the race issue and the racism is what created it, especially when you talk about redlining. And when you put people into 
areas where they're drained of resources, where, you know, they don't have grocery stores, but they have three liquor stores within three blocks. You know, I lived that. Um, Did you drive down Cam Run to get here, bro? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, there, there are all those issues. And so now what happens is we have built America to be where minorities and black Americans make up a majority of low income America. All right. They are disproportionately making up these areas. If we had true racial equity, which is black Americans making up 13% of the population, we make up 13% of wealth. We would be in 13% of the suburbs. We'd be like all of this. I live in not a suburb, but a wealth. I live in St. Matthews here in Louisville. And out of 200 people in my 200 houses in my neighborhood, I'm one of two minority homeowners. That's not racial equity. But if you look at the redlining map from Louisville from 1930, 1940 or so, St. Matthews, Prospect, Mockingbird Valley, these were all places that were redlined for whites only. Mm -hmm. And blacks could not get, uh, black people could not get uh, capital, could not get loans. And so they were stuck in West uh, West Louisville. They were stuck in, in Smoketown. They were stuck in all these other areas. And we still see that they've been deprived of resources even today. And this is not just in Kentucky or just in Louisville. This is in all 50 states around the U.S. It's, this is redlining affected everyone. And so when I talk about systemic racism today, it's more of a class issue. And we have rich people who are literally running everything. And so when and hoarding I'm, all the resources oh in gosh. certain in zip codes where nobody else can have access to them. Absolutely. And so you have your you rich people who are lining the pockets of both Democrats and Republicans, because Definitely. I keep telling people this is not a Democrat issue. This is not a Republican issue. These bills and these initiatives that have been passed for decades were passed with bipartisan support. Yeah. No matter who the president was, no matter who was, who is the senator, who is the whatever Democrats and Republicans have both been benefiting from the systems that we have in place right now, and they have been making money. And the rich ones have. Yes. Yes. And they're lining their pockets as well to make sure that we don't address these issues. And then you want to talk about the media because everyone hates the media right now, and they should, because media's goal is not quality journalism, but their goal is to maximize profits like any other corporation. I think people forget that the media, whether you're Fox News or whether you're CNN or MSNBC, you're a corporation. You're worried about maximizing your profits for rich people. Yeah. You're shareholders. That's capitalism. The same people that own those news stations put money into the super PACs of the politicians whom we're voting for right now. Absolutely. So so the agenda that is going to be represented is it's going to be biased. And it's really, really hard to get a nuanced perspective nowadays, which is why it's so cool that you're doing what you're doing right now. So I definitely want to take some time to talk about your podcast. This is my podcast, Just Friends Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Torrance, you have your own podcast. And I love yeah. the title of it, by the way. Yeah. Let's get uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, nobody wants to be uncomfortable. I went for like a walk jog with my dog this morning. My mm -hmm. wife, she just takes off running. You saw her. She's skinny. She's a butthole. And the the main reason why I didn't take off after her was because I didn't want to be extremely uncomfortable for about an hour. Yeah. I'm fat. I'd rather be not fat. <laughs> I know what it takes to be not fat. Yeah. But I don't want to do what it takes to be not fat because I don't want to be uncomfortable. Now, I feel lucky because I've, I'm conditioned in being uncomfortable with my thoughts. I spent a lot of time in a church that I slowly <laughs> over time realized that I didn't uh, I shared a lot of the same values, but I didn't agree with a lot of the same facts, I mm -hmm. guess you'd say that. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I'm like, 
a lot of the great things that come from this church, I definitely want to have in my life, but I don't want to have them because I believe this story that I don't appear to be true. Right. So I feel lucky because I have practiced challenging my own thoughts and then realizing, damn it, I've been long, I've been wrong for like four years. I'm fucking <laughs> stupid. But not a lot of people have that. Yeah. And so having access to a place where they can safely receive that information from mm-hmm. a person who's, opinion that they value and who they have a relationship with is invaluable. Yeah. So what led to the creation of let's get uncomfortable and tell people about that podcast. Cause I would encourage anybody listening mm-hmm. now to check that out. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Um, so again, man, I use my Facebook as a way to get people to see both sides. Uh, I have some really intelligent friends who thoughtfully will, type things out. And when they don't understand something or they have a question about something on their Facebook, they do this. So it's great for other people because they can look back and they can say, okay, so this is what this person said. Okay. And this is the opposition. And then that's what they came back with. And oh, okay. And so then people get to read and they get to learn from two people who are not arguing with each other, who are trying to learn from each other and who are giving, you know, supporting facts and data along with asserting their position. Meaningful and discourse. It's, it's amazing. And so I do that on mine, but I do it around issues of race and class because, you know, that's what I'm passionate about. Um, I realize that I'm in a unique position in the fact that I grew up in poverty and now I'm no longer there. Uh, I would say that I'm, I'm middle class. Um, I am, I'm married, uh, with a kid on the way and I'm in a majority white space just all the time, whether it's my neighborhood uh, whether it's my job, I, I work in manufacturing. And so a lot of the people that I will talk to, whether they be executives or they be other engineers, uh, engineering is not a place where you see a lot of minorities. <laughs> so I'm in a majority white space all the time. Um, and even my friend group. And so I'm always having these conversations about race and class because a lot of my white friends just don't understand or they don't know. And so I then have those, I will make posts about different topics on my Facebook page. And I definitely make sure to monitor it to make sure that people are not arguing with each other and, and all and, and all of that. But it's something that has grown over the last four or five years into a place where so many people will talk to me about my posts. So many, it gets a lot of engagement and I have a lot of offline conversations. I, you know, whether we go to dinner with different couples or I'm in text messages or uh, Facebook messages or Instagram messages or, or whatever else, there are so many people who are always telling me, oh man, I saw this or I saw that. And I, and I, I really agree with this poster. Hey, you know, I really don't understand this or don't understand that. And so I'm able to use this, this burden that I've seen uh, in some ways, and I've really been able to flip it and kind of make it into a strength. And what I mean by that burden is I mentioned it earlier is that I'm the black, white guy or the white, black guy. You know, a lot of my white friends see me as a white guy, even though I'm black, you know, doesn't happen if I get pulled over by the cops or, you know, I found a street or whatever. I can't be like, Hey, I'm the white, black guy, (laughs) you know? Um, and so a lot of the time, a lot of the times, uh, it's rough because, you know, I, I am black in the white world, but at the same time, the way that I speak and sometimes the way that I carry myself is not stereotypically black. And so I'm even outcast in the black community sometimes, and I'm a lot different from a lot of the people that are in my family even. So I always feel like, and I really liked this book from um, from Ta-Nehisi Coates, but I always feel like I'm between two worlds. Uh, his is actually called uh, Between the World and Me. 
But uh, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, he talks about being in the middle as well because he had a white father, I believe, that was Swiss and his African mother. And, you know, there's just this 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 disconnect that I am trying to bridge and I'm trying to help bridge the gap through understanding. And so what I've tried to do is I've realized that how you have conversations, how you frame conversations and and the energy that you give all matters because people who respect you will listen to you and they'll and they'll and they will care about what you have to say. And so that's what I've tried to do. And with this podcast, I've tried to put it on a larger scale. And so a lot of the information and a lot of the the conversations that I've that I've previously had, I've tried to bring to this podcast in a way that we can try to seek to understand rather than seek to be right. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people just want to be right. And they believe that their perspective is is the right perspective. For so long, we've been told, hey, you don't talk about race, religion, or politics because that could ruin relationships. But what it's done is we haven't stopped talking about those things. We just stopped talking about those things with people who think differently than we do. And so now we're in echo chambers mm-hmm. and now we've had people reinforce our beliefs and reinforce our perspectives. And we're like, man, ours is right. How could anyone ever think anything different? And so when someone does think something different and you do engage with them, you immediately reject it because we are in a society now of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And if you, <laughs> and if you think differently than I do, or you have a different perspective than I do, and it correspond and it doesn't correspond with what I believe, I'm going to reject it. I'm and not, in fact, I'm a double down. Yes, I mean because that's they've done science so studies in sociology that that study what happens when you give a person facts that directly disprove something that they strongly believe. They double down on that thing yeah. that they strongly believe. I mean, that's just a, that's the nature of human beings. I don't understand why necessarily. I don't know, but for some reason it is. Uh, but I I'm really grateful that there are people out there who are trying really hard to to spread positivity you talked a lot about your mindset mm-hmm. and you also talked a lot about when you were younger like experiencing therapy one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is is mindfulness and the idea of like trying to take ownership of your thoughts so you know i asked you earlier about the books that you read and uh some of the 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 ideas that you've expressed here First, were introduced to me by Sam Harris. Are you familiar with Sam Harris? I'm not. So Sam Harris is a public intellectual. He's a neuroscientist, and he got his claim to fame was he's like a staunch atheist. Hmm. He's not a religious man at all. Okay. Um, and so when I was first introduced to him, I was a Christian, and I was like, eh, I don't want to listen to Sam Harris. Yeah. Because he, I knew right away who's a smarter person than I was, who was going to have facts that disproved the things <laughs> that I thought. So I was immediately like, nah. But one of the things that he talks about is he specifically says that he doesn't believe humans have free will. You're only off. You're only given the opportunity to make decisions mm-hmm. about the opportunities or about the things in your life that present themselves as opportunities. So you can't choose to be a millionaire yeah. unless that's available to you. Right. You can't choose to be a straight A student unless you have all the things in your life that are there to scaffold you becoming a straight A student. And so a lot of people don't really choose to be to to engage in criminal activity. 
they're not really choosing to be drug dealers or be, uh, you know, like what a lot of people would describe as being like a bad person. Even though I got lots of friends, they sell drugs and they're really great people. So I don't know why we've got such an issue with it. Right. But. Well, now legally people get to sell drugs as well. Well, yeah. In certain areas. Yeah. There are people <laughs> legally. And, and, and the, the healthcare industry has been just shoving opioids down people's throats for years and making a profit off of that. And nobody wants to say anything about that. Yep. I, I feel comfortable engaging with you on these ideas. Mm-hmm. And I don't often feel comfortable getting into this area on my podcast because I don't do it a lot. But for some reason with you, you're just an approachable person. I appreciate that. You f- I, f- I get a vibe from you of of rationality, of deep thought. You've thought about your ideas. You're not just regurgitating somebody else's. And I don't expect that I could say something offensive that would result in you freaking out on me, (laughs) right? But having you here and having you in this space and as, as a white person who just wants to be, like I want to be an ally. Mm-hmm. But I'm not like, I'm not bought into this like religion of wokeness or social justice. I definitely want to see people's lives improve who are struggling. Right. And I definitely understand the challenges of specifically, like you said, the the, the class structures in our country that have, have held individuals back. But I also mm-hmm. understand the, the struggles of specifically minority individuals. Mm-hmm. I realize that there are echoes of racism and then Jim Crow South and then things like redlining and then the war on drugs. Absolutely. That have specifically targeted people of color. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be divisive. And I've really struggled mm-hmm. to try to figure out what's the best way for me to contribute. Because I don't want it to be screaming at people on social media. Right. And I don't want to be virtue signaling. But I also want to try to figure out a way to, to contribute in a meaningful way. Yeah. So for people who are like me, who mm-hmm. are sitting out there, who are listening to this, who feel this similarly, what would you say to those people? Man, there's so much you can do. Um, you can donate your time. You can donate your money, your energy, your influence to nonprofit organizations that are fighting the good fight. Uh, you can donate to, um, to campaigns of individuals that you think that once elected will also fight systemic racism, will, will address the issues uh, that are negatively affecting low-income communities, minority communities. You can also help write legislation or help make sure that you elect people that are going to push legislation that is going to help address these issues. And outside of that, when it comes to to racism, you as a white man, your voice when talking to white people is going to carry so much more weight than mine ever will. Because when white people look at me, they expect me to have the mindset that I do, the perspective that I do, and the words to come out of my mouth. They expect it. Unless there's someone that I know and that they respect me and they know who I am. So what I would say to other white people is police the people who are around you. Do not allow them to say, as you said earlier, very incorrect things, or you've heard people say, you know, maybe racist things or things that you don't necessarily agree with. You need to speak up and it, and it may be tough and it may feel, oh man, like, I don't, I don't know if I should, or, or you're going to feel a certain type of way about it. But if you truly deep down want to be an ally and you want to be a part of the fight, you've got to feel uncomfortable. 
You, you just have to, you're going to have to get outside of your bubble. So I, I challenge white people to get outside of themselves, to get uncomfortable, to try to be an ally as much as they can and to try to diversify their lives. You know, we live in a segregated community essentially because of redlining suburbs are mostly white. And then when you talk about low income areas, uh, especially the West end of Louisville, we're talking mostly black. So what that means is we don't have to tell children that there's a difference between minorities and white people. They can pick up on it. So think if you live out in prospect, the doctors that you have or that you're going to take your children to, they're going to be white. The friends that you're going to have in your neighborhood are going to be white. The parks that you go to in your neighborhood, they're going to be white. The schools that you go to. And so the only time that they're going to see minorities typically is when they're going to the grocery store. And maybe they're bagging their groceries or if they go to the restaurant and maybe they're their waiter. And so you don't have to tell kids there's a difference. They're Mm. going to pick up on it and say, oh, well, there's a difference here. And I challenge people to raise their kids and try to go an extra 15 minutes to go to a different park. If you're going to take your kid to the park, give them the chance to, to learn and to integrate with people who don't look like them. Uh, and I think that's I think that's a, a huge thing, especially when I think about the friends that I had in middle school and high school whose parents helped lift me up. And I don't know if you want to get to this point here, but the public school versus private school thing here in Louisville. My wife grew up in private school. I grew up in public school. And, you know, the majority of her friends are white and the majority of the area that she grew up in and since she grew up in Cincinnati, all white. And. I don't necessarily want that for our child because our child is going to be mixed. Our child is going to be considered black and I don't want our child to be token like I was. I don't want them to have to carry that weight of having to speak for an entire race. Every time you open your mouth, every, like every action and everything that you do, people are like, Oh, well that's because they're black. Every negative thing you do is going to be because you're black. Every positive thing you do doesn't doesn't change their stereotype of being black. So it doesn't matter it just if, makes you the exception, like you were saying earlier. Makes me the exception. Doesn't matter that I that I have a good job, that I'm married, that I that I that we own a great house, that I'm a good human, that I have all these other positive things. If it doesn't fit the stereotype of being black, I'm not changing anyone's mind of what being black is because they're not changing their stereotype in their head. Um but the, the public school versus private school thing is I have so many white friends who are college educated, them, them and their, uh, their spouse, who are going to create beautiful homes for their children, are going to be phenomenal parents. And they're probably going to send them, a lot of them are going to send them to, to private school. And I really wish that they would look at the public school route only because I know these people and they're going to be so involved in their child's life and they are so educated that their child is going to be fine. They're mm-hmm. going to be able to come home and they're going to teach them how to do the algebra and the math. They're going to teach them, you know, what parts of, of a cell are. They're going to teach them all of these things they need to know. They're going to be fine. But the ability for them to be able to go to school with people who don't look like them, to be able to make friends with people who don't look like them, to be able to bring them home and to be able to be a role model and to have that peer group for kids that don't look like them who may not have that full home that they are providing for their child. I, I, I just think that the ability to do that, in my mind, 
outweighs paying money for them to go to a essentially segregated school. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I just think about you starting a family and, and also like the responsibility that you kind of have already expressed about like bringing a young black child into the world that we live in now. Yeah. So there's, so there's two things about that. There's one in that I am scared to bring a young black child into this, in this world right now. Yeah. The things that I've had to go through, the things that, you know, so many other Americans are going through right now as well. But man, secondarily, I'm also proud. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of avoided talking about the, the major impact that my grandmother had on me and I lost her four years ago. A little over four years ago, definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. But if you want to talk about honestly, the singular reason that I am where I am, where I'm even able to have the impact that I have would have been nothing without her. And so, man, I, I even get emotional thinking about the kid that is about to come into this world right now because he or she is, is unborn right now, hasn't even been born. And they already have so much more potential to be successful than I ever had uh, when I was growing up. And what I mean by that is this child is going to be born into a home with two college educated parents. Mm. They're going to be born into a, a higher income neighborhood. They're going to not want for anything. Um, they're going to be able to have the resources to take advantage of any opportunities that may come their way. Essentially, they're not going to have to work half as hard as I had to work to get to where I am, but I don't necessarily know that's a bad thing, but I always worry because I, I think that the way that I think now and the way that I am and, and, and the person that I am, I wouldn't be this way without the struggles that I had to go through and, and all of that. But I also don't think that it's fair that people who get out of poverty are supposed to wear it as a badge of honor. like hey. The world made your life really shitty, but you got out. Congratulations. And because you did it, everyone else can. That is not the mindset that mm -hmm. we should have. Our mindset should be, why have we created this, this, this arena, this place in which people have to work so much harder to get to a basic understanding or to the basic tools that they need to make good decisions Whereas so many other people on the other end of town start out so at, at a higher place in society or will automatically have so many more things just around them, but to either child born into either place, they're not responsible for anything that was done outside of that. It's just what they're born into. And we were all a product of our environment, but our environments were created before we even got here. Mm -hmm. And we're still not doing anything to necessarily change that. And so I guess all of that is to say, I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to bring a child into this world. I'm also at the same time, very worried. And I, I am also not going to stop anytime soon when it comes to trying to make our community a better place and a more equitable, a more equitable place as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think about when I just listen to you talk, you know, coming up where you came up and, and having the challenges and facing the adversity that you faced. There were mm. things that you had to overcome. But in the process of overcoming that, that informs who you are as a person. And that adversity makes you stronger and makes you more capable. 
do you worry about taking that away from your kids a little bit? Oh, I do. Like they're not going to have to struggle the same way that you struggled. And then so maybe that they just won't grow into be as resilient or as tough of a person as as you've had to be because of your challenges. Oh, absolutely. If I raise spoiled kids, I'm going to be so (laughs) mad. I'm going to be so mad. Uh, But I also, I also, I worry about that. But at the same time, I just don't think the way that my wife and I are built that, that is going to be something that happens. Uh, I know that we plan on very early on making sure that our kids know that they are 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 very lucky to be the where they are, and to also hopefully at an early age instill the fact that it is important to give back to the community and it is important to also think of people who do not have as much as we do and to try to help those people as much as we can. I'm gonna hope that that works. And I will report back to you in 18 years. Thank you. I appreciate that. You will have to do another episode of the podcast in 18 years. Your future child can be on as well. I hope I'm still doing this in 18 years. Who knows? That'd be cool. Yeah, it would be cool. Do you have, do you you really have like big aspirations for what your podcast becomes? Do you know what it's going to be or is it? Because for me, it was just kind of like, I got to try it. Yeah. I feel like you have more of a purpose and you have more of a goal. And you explained that goal earlier. You're you're trying to help people become more enlightened. You're trying Mm -hmm. to provide them with a perspective that they may have just never had the opportunity to hear before. Then once they hear it, they can do with it what they want. But if if they're in the right place to really hear it, you know, you might have an impact on that person. I see great value in that. Yeah, man. I I really, I really hope that that's what people will, will gain from that, from our, from my podcast. But Really, what I want is I would love to be financially secure on the way to being financially secure and to be able to work full time for a nonprofit or full time for a school that is specifically set up to to serve uh, low income communities. That's 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 where my goal is for myself personally. And so the thing is, is that I just don't want to wait. And so since I've been 25, I've decided that. Well, since I turned 25, six years ago, I have decided that I want to do whatever I can or as much as I can in my spare time and in helping others, especially low income communities. And so that's what I do in my, in, in volunteering on these, on these boards and, uh, volunteering to help mentor kids and, and all these other things. And so now this podcast is, is just serving another purpose. It's allowing, it's allowing me to be something that I can do in my spare time to help affect change that I want to see and whatever it grows into is great. But you know, that that's really where I want to be, but I've definitely got to make sure that, you know, my family's taken care of and, and then I want to put all my energy into that. I know a lot of people have talked to me about getting into public service and elected officials, but fuck politics, man. (laughs) I, I just, I just don't, I don't see that as, as a thing. But at the same time, man, it's just kind of like I keep waiting for candidates to come through that are going to be uh, level-headed, that are going to be caring and compassionate, and are going to not allow corporations and rich people to be in their pockets and to influence their decisions. And I have this novel idea that politicians should be working for the people and should want to pass legislation that helps everyone and helps people who are being affected but we don't see that. And I don't know when we're going to get there. And I don't know who is going to be that person. 
and I don't know how much longer we're going to have to keep waiting. So uh, yeah. I, I, I really just believe in grassroots and, you know, if we can create something on a small scale that helps a small community that hopefully we can replicate that in other places as well. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, like, I kind of agree with you. I feel, especially right now, when I look at the people who are running for office, mm-hmm. I don't see anybody who represents me. I yeah. don't see a single person who seems to value the same things that I value. Uh, I see little sprinkles of it everywhere yeah. on both sides, which is yeah. also really frustrating. But the majority of what I see is corruption and and foolishness and um, really just like a a veil being pulled over the eyes of American people. And the attempt to manipulate them as much as they possibly can. Yeah. So the thing that frustrates me the most is I would love to see you run for office. <laughs> I would love to see that. And you I was know, so stoked sir. when, when uh, Daryl decided that he was going to run for office. Cause I'm like, we need more thoughtful people doing these things, but we have a system that does not incentivize that. No, it, all the smart people, all the best people who you might want for the job. They say the exact same thing. <laughs> nah, <laughs> nope. No. Um, the, the one person that I believe in a lot right now is Charles Booker. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that his hood to the holler campaign, that is something that could really make the connection for a lot of people because we do get split up on minorities versus poor whites. I mean, there are so many white people who say, you know, I grew up in the same place as a lot of these, my, a lot of minorities And I don't, what do you mean? Like, it's not tougher, you know, there is no difference and they're, they're really missing the idea of there is a difference between class strife and a difference between racial strife. But at the same time, a lot of the issues that poor white America, poor rural white America is going through are the same things that are happening in the hood. Yeah. And being, being able to make that connection, especially in a state like Kentucky, where we are so divided, so segregated, and there is a large rural white pop, uh, population, his hood to the holler campaign is incredible. Uh, because once we make that connection and realize that, you know, we are just people and we're both being negatively affected, we need to address that, but we need to unify and address it together. Mm-hmm. Because there there is no stronger way to create change than all of us doing it together. Uh, I always tell people right now that, you know, because they say the protests, you know, they're they're not effective. They're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Strongest protest that we can do, especially in a capitalistic society, is to hit people in their in their pockets. Mm-hmm. But the majority of Americans, it's like 58, 61 percent, something like that. The majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And that is done on purpose. Yeah. Because for Amazon and for Walmart and for all of these other ridiculously wealthy corporations, if their workers didn't show up, they would not continue to be able to make money. And that is when the corporations are going to say, okay, politicians, you all need to fix this. You need to do that because we need these people to come back to work so that we can make more money. But these people can't take the month off of work or the two months off of work that it would take to force these corporations to make the changes that need to be taken because we've been kept broke. Yeah. And you can't you can't not go to work for two months. You'll lose your house, you'll lose your car, you'll lose everything. You'll go into debt. Yeah, we've seen what happens when you don't go to work for two months recently with COVID. And and I mean like we're on the I don't understand how we've managed to I mean we haven't really kept things together to be honest. I mean I yeah. think a lot of the unrest that you're seeing has to do with so many people 
finally saying like, look, I'm not going to have a job either way. So I might as well speak up. Well, well, do you see the thing with the economy? Everyone is saying, oh my gosh, we can't not work. We can't be in quarantine because of the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, even throughout quarantine, the two months that we were shut down or so, there was so much manufacturing, our essential workers that kept going to work. There's so much manufacturing that was still going on because capitalism has to keep going. The economy has to keep going. So what happens that that just goes ahead and tells you what is the focus? What is the primary focus of our country? And so if you really want to affect change, we have to be able to hit people in the pockets, but our systems keep people poor so that they can't protest in the way that they really need to. Yeah. I think somebody said something that I heard not too long ago that I think you will specifically appreciate. You know, we have, we're, we're, we have this American dream, this American ideal that's set out in the constitution. All men are created equal. You have the, 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 the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that is what we are trying to achieve. And I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with those ideals. Right. Except that it was said when we were, were segregated. Well, true. Black people were two thirds of a human. Right. And, I, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. But I'm not thinking about like, I'm thinking about just the ideal itself. Like right. all yeah. men are, should be equal. Completely agree. And, and they should have equal opportunity to succeed and they mm-hmm. should have the opportunity to life and liberty, the pursuit of happiness, if they so choose it, those ideals are not bad, but they have not been realized. And the system that we have in place, a lot of people are saying like, we need to get back to the roots. We need to get back to the, we need to look at the constitution and we need to just try to go back to the way things were. That's the conservative ideal, like to conserve, to, to keep things the way that they were, or go back to an old way of thinking. But somebody said something the other day that really struck me and they were like, The result that a system achieves is the exact result that that system is designed to achieve. Yep. It's not so much that it was the the result that the system was initially intended to achieve, but the result that is achieved is exactly what that system is perfect to achieve. So we have to really take a look and say, the way we're doing things now, this is where it gets us. Mm-hmm. We've really got to try to do things differently. So I'm usually very struck when I encounter a person who doesn't have a progressive point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're, you know, like Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, all these words don't really fully encompass uh, what it means to to think about the future of our country. I mean, you can be a conservative person, but also be in favor of progressive ideals. It's Mm -hmm. difficult to have that conversation. Yeah. But one thing is definitely true. We have to move forward Mm -hmm. and we have to try new things and we have to be willing to try new things because what we've been doing so far gets us this. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot of people who would agree that this is exactly where we want to be right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I agree. Um, yeah. The systems were definitely, I think they've, they worked a lot better than initially even intended. Because when you talk about redlining and it being started in the late 30s, they specifically wanted to make sure that black people were not able to achieve as much as white people. Yeah, because at that time, there were tons of really affluent black communities that were broken up. People don't talk about that kind of yeah. thing. but Talk about Black Wall Street yeah. in Tulsa. Uh, you know, 
people talk about, you know, why don't we have black dollars going to black businesses? Well, we did that. And it literally, they dropped bombs and they came through and they murdered and they took away Tulsa. Same thing happened in Rosewood and the same thing happened here in Louisville. Really? Uh, Walnut Street, which is down by uh, old Louisville. You know, Walnut Street was a sprawling area of black success. And then urban revitalization came through and said, no, y'all can't have that disperse. And they took everything. And so black wealth has been built in this country, but repeatedly black wealth has been taken away in this country in order to keep black people down. And so when I talk about redlining, you know, they did that on purpose in order to make sure that, that black people were not successful and it's worked better than they ever thought. And I say that because I don't know that if you would have told them that today they'd be one twelfth of wealth or that we would make up 40% of the prison population, even though we only make up 13% of the actual U.S. population. I mean, all of these different issues where we graduate high school at a 69% rate versus 86% for white people, like the disparities that we have in society right now, the, the people that created all of this in the 30s and even before, I mean... They'd be so happy. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats, the same. You know, it, it's never a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a black versus white issue that was created decades ago that has just been perpetuating, and we're still feeling the effects of it. And until we address those root causes, you know, we're, we're, we're doomed to continue it. Yeah. And a lot of the people have to understand that a lot of those same things have also greatly neg negatively impacted poor white people. Absolutely. And so a, a lot of the things that we could change right now that we could address right now that would improve the situation of tons of low income minority families mm -hmm. would also improve the situation of more just by virtue of the fact that there are more yep. low income white families. Because like you said earlier, 13% of the population is African American. Mm -hmm. I think something like 76% of the population is white. Yeah. So that's, I mean, right there, but numbers are hard. People struggle with numbers too. That's another thing that's so challenging. I, tr I try really hard to stay positive and I like to surround myself with positive people. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I think about the future and I, and I, and I follow the trends that I've seen so far, sometimes it can be discouraging and that's why I'm so grateful to have people like you who are out there just spreading positivity with kindness, but also with an informed perspective. One of the, one of the main lessons that I've learned in my life is that you have to love other people. Mm -hmm. um, they are you. They're made of the exact same things that you're made out of. They're called Absolutely. quarks. And if you want to spend a whole bunch of time studying physics and chemistry, you'll learn about what those are. But they're made in the hearts of large stars and you're made out of the same thing as I'm made out of, bro. So we're the same. Yeah. And just seeing that and understanding that is so important. Yeah. So I could not be more grateful for your perspective and I could not be more grateful for you coming on this podcast. Tell people about your podcast. Let them know where they can find you if they want to listen to you talk some more. I think a lot of people will. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so you can find me in Let's Get Uncomfortable. Uh, you can find me on iTunes, uh, Spotify. I'm on Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. Pretty much any any um, podcast platform that you use, you can find Let's Get Uncomfortable. And uh, you'll find my face staring uh, right back at you. Our fourth episode is coming up uh, this Monday, whatever that date is, November 4th? I think it's 4th, yeah. Yeah, November 4th. Uh, we're going to tackle the Brianna Taylor uh, case. 
that's a that's a big one right there. Yeah. Because something we've seen both in that instance and also involving COVID is just the amount of information, misinformation that yeah. is out there is just so insane. Um so so for I think a lot of people would really appreciate a perspective of just trying to present the truth, just mm-hmm. trying to help people understand what's going on and it's been interesting the last few months in Louisville, but we're lucky to have people like you out there spreading positivity and also spread, spreading good thought <laughs> and encouraging people to think for themselves and giving them the opportunity to hear different perspectives. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. We've got a uh, a former LMPD officer as well as a um, a current lawyer. Mm. And so we're going to be talking about the case uh, from a police officer perspective, but also from um, a law perspective and both give the facts while also giving their opinions uh, and they separate the two. I can't wait to listen to it. <laughs> Dude, I'm so grateful and thankful that you came here and did this with me today. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really glad that you reached out and I'm, I'm excited, man. I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a podcast, brother. I appreciate you so much. I love you. Yeah, love you too, brother. Bye, man. See ya. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen, another podcast in the books. I want to thank Torrance for being on the show. He was awesome. And I want to encourage you all to go check out his podcast, Let's Get Uncomfortable with Torrance Williams. Once again, guys, if you haven't already, please rate the show, leave us a review, tell everybody you love us, share the podcast website, buy a t-shirt, become a Patreon patron. Based on the analytics, nobody listens to these outros anyway, so don't forget to tune in next week when we have another fantastic guest, another Starbucks buddy, Mr. Gabe Pruitt. Man, that guy can talk. It was such a blast catching up with him. So take care of yourselves until then. I hope you have a fantastic week. I love you all. Bye.